This is La La Land. Not that La La Land, but the podcast of UT Austin's Texas Undergraduate Law Journal, where we delve into the legal issues that pique the interest of the greater UT community. Guys, welcome to our second podcast. Um, in case y'all are new to our show, this is La La Land, Woo! the podcast of the Texas Undergraduate Law Journal. Um, so yeah, shout out to everyone listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out to Melissa Murray. Shout out, legit shout out. shout out. We love Melissa Murray and we love Strict Scrutiny. Strict Scrutiny is our favorite podcast. Uh, I'm Juliet Draper, editor-in-chief of Law Journal. I'm Braxton um, Cannon. I'm a podcast editor. I'm Alexander Tsutsias and I'm the podcast manager for this uh year and we are all strict scrutiny stands mm-hmm. um so with that in mind i think we should just jump off into what our second episode is going to be about mm-hmm. so actually strict scrutiny reference number four of this podcast so far uh strict scrutiny released an episode in august 29 29th of 2022 entitled fossil fuels rules fossil fuels rule everything around me so that episode really opened up my eyes at least to the idea of um amicus briefs yeah and the dark money behind them. So our incognito guest for today will be Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. So Sheldon Whitehouse was a guest star on that Strict Scrutiny episode. And in that episode, he talked a lot about the work he's done as I think like head of the Senate Judiciary, like mm-hmm. subcommittee. Something like that. Something, something like that. Yeah. Um, and he also wrote a piece for the Yale Law Journal that was published in October, 2021. I think it was, issue um i don't know what issue but in the piece he talked about um it was called a flood of judicial lobbying amicus influence and funding transparency Mm -hmm. so that was a lot of influence for this episode yeah yeah it was really helpful but he did a great job with that article yeah so let's let's talk about it let's oh i mean dark money what even is an amicus brief yeah Uh, i mean Amicus briefs are essentially, I mean, in short, and, and we'll get into this more extensively uh, in the podcast, but they're briefs written by uh, non-parties to a case for the purposes of generally providing information, expertise, insight. Um, a lot of advis- advocacy groups actually um, right now, such as the American Civil uh, Liberties Union, mm-hmm. uh, American Center for uh, Law and Justice, and the Cato Institute, um, uh, do a lot right now in appellate courts with with essentially expanding upon uh, uh, data and information for judges, justices to kind of um, you know oversee the, the the larger implications that you know a case could have. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know I think what's you know really important for us to to do is to kind of take a step back uh, and and to uh, get a general understanding of, of of what an amicus brief actually is because mm-hmm. you know I, I know I certainly didn't know very much about it. Um, until last semester, actually, right. um, you know, it's, it's oh. crazy that, you know, and, and this is just, you know, my own personal opinion, but yeah. government, uh, on a, the degree at UT, they try to do the best they possibly can, you know, to, <laughs> yeah. to talk about all three branches. Um, but unless you really, uh, you know, try your best, it, it's hard to, to study something like, uh, the judicial branch yeah. um, mm-hmm. and classes aren't, aren't, uh, uh, taught all that often. Right. But I did take a class actually last semester with Professor Poe that, you know, did a really wonderful job what of, was uh, of yeah. all of that. It was a Supreme Court. Uh, the modern Supreme Court mm. uh, is essentially the class. It's from the Warren Court. Oh, uh, and uh, so it was, you know, really, really great course. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, that, with, with that <laughs> brief tangent aside, um, I ended up going to all kinds of little rabbit holes and stuff. Um, but mm. in, in, in Amicus 
brief, the more formal term for an amicus brief actually is amicus curiae. Um, plural of that is amici curiae. Um, essentially, it's it's a friend of the court. Um, it's you know the practice of submitting in written form, usually about thirty pages or mm-hmm. so, I think, um, to about forty different uh, uh, you know members on the court, you know justices, clerks, uh, anybody else yeah. um, who are considered essential mm-hmm. uh, personnel, um, and they basically read this brief uh, as you know. Uh, a way to expand upon uh, uh, the case at hand. Now, it, this is a, you know, we should note it's a relatively novel practice. Um, this was something that, you know, originally began with Henry Clay and I think the mm. 1880s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. But it actually didn't really gain steam until about the late uh, 1920s, early, uh, uh, early 1930s. And since, you know, the practice has just surged. Um, so what happens with the... Amicus brief is that it's filed by an outside individual or an outside organization who isn't party to the case. So they're not mm. a petitioner. They're not a respondent. Mm. They're literally an outside person, right? We're not mm. talking about an officer of the federal government. We're not talking mm. about somebody who works for the uh, a state. I mean, this truly is somebody who is submitting uh, in written form to the court an opinion, mm. right? A, a formal opinion, not just, you know, hey, this is what I think about this stuff. And these <laughs> right. are some arguments, yeah. you know, I've kind of cobbled together. I mean, it's, a, it's an official uh, uh, brief. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, you know, as mentioned earlier, they kind of outlined their expertise and knowledge on the mm-hmm. issue and, and how they think um, the court should rule on the matter. Now, they have the ability to either side with the petitioner or the respondent, which are typically the two parties present, although sometimes... Um, the petitioner can be the appellant um, if you're an appellate uh, court, or they essentially just voice whether or not they're in support of upholding a particular statute that's being challenged or invalidating um, that mm-hmm. statute. Now, these amicus briefs, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, give all of you listeners the sense that it's just, you know, this thing that like all the time amicus briefs are being filed, which which is which is true in a lot of cases they are. Yeah. Um, I mean, Dobbs, there were so many, like yes. really high profile yes. cases, mm-hmm. and, controversial ones. And usually they're found in cases where there are broad public mm-hmm. interests, mm-hmm. right? So when you think mm-hmm. of something like the right to privacy or the mm-hmm. right to have an abortion, right? That's something that has broad ramifications for a lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. It, it isn't this niche topic. It's something that a lot of people will be affected by it. Um, and the Supreme Court has, you know, special rules for uh, amici curiae. Uh, or curiae, and and they're listed in in Rule Thirty Seven, um, and 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 one of their uh, 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 their one of their criterions uh, criterion is that um, the brief should cover relevant matter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not dealt with by the parties present, right? Which may be of considerable help. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, before we even started the podcast, um, you know, we were talking a little bit about you know uh, how big of a role they've played you know, in, in uh, appellate court cases, right? And, and, and one of the limitations of, you know, an appellate case is that uh, uh, the, the judges there are actually limited to the factual record and to the arguments stemming from the lower court case. So it's not like they, uh, lawyers can introduce new facts or findings, right? This isn't the first time that the case is being heard. All the appellate court is trying to do in this case um, or in this situation, I guess I should say, is, is just to see whether... Um, the procedures uh, in that lower court case were, were followed through with. And if right. they weren't, mm-hmm. why weren't they? And, 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 and should that case somehow mm-hmm. be reversed or okay. should it not? 
So amicus play an important role for appellate cases. Oh, a, a, a thousand percent they do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in the Supreme Court, actually, um, you know, they also play an important role as well. Um, you know, in, in the 2014 term, um, there are about 781 briefs wow. which had been filed. That was an 800 percent increase from the 1950s um, and, and a 95 percent increase uh, from 1995. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, those those figures have just continued to rise. So, I mean, it, it is incredibly important, these things. You know, I, I, the, they play a massive role in both the appellate courts and the Supreme Courts, but the appellate courts is where they play what I think a, a really significant mm-hmm. um, a really significant role. Uh, and, and you have a lot of advocacy groups like, you know, I, I just touched on American Civil Liberties Union, Cato Institute, American Center for Law and Justice. These are some of the really big ones, right, that take up this burden of expanding on some of these implications for the court, right? So you had brought up, Juliet, you know, yeah. the, the, the Dobbs case, right? And, mm. and you have a lot of these different advocacy groups that, that are stepping in, right? And trying mm-hmm. to, I don't want to say educate the justices, right? But obviously... We'll push their agenda to a certain mm-hmm. extent. Well, like you may not have thought about like these groups maybe marginally impacted. Right. Like, it's 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 making them aware of, of, of the data that's out there, right? Because mm-hmm. obviously, you know... Anybody can, you know, look online and see, okay, well, what does this person yeah. think or what does that person think? But, but you know, what's really important is, is how is that data framed, mm-hmm. right? That's a scary thing which, too, you know? Yeah, yeah which, which, which we'll is a about. big thing for, uh, uh, for these groups. Now, you know, what's been really uh, uh, difficult, right, and, and, and really why there's been, you know, such a massive need for, for these uh, uh, amicus briefs is that as cases have gotten more complex... Right. Obviously, these justices don't know everything. Right. They need mm-hmm. somebody or some group. And hopefully, you know, th- this is a group with, you know, <laughs> good intentions. Right. And, and, you know, there's no malicious intent behind all of it. Right. But but they kind of need to step in and they have to give these justices or these judges, you know, uh, uh, a full picture. Right. Or, or, or yeah. a sense of, of, you know, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, and then I do think like it's important to make the distinction between like when people will file like an amicus brief for like the cert stage mm-hmm. versus like when, because uh, mm-hmm. I didn't know there was a difference, like yeah. the cert stage versus like when a case has already been decided to be on the docket. So like, right. how does that work? Like, what do y'all think of the implications of that, I guess? Well, yeah, I mean, I know there's like, a, there's a big difference. There's a, a lot of groups that their whole goal is to make a showing at the cert stage. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who doesn't know, like the cert stage is basically before the Supreme Court yes. has granted cert for a case. So it's before the Supreme Court has publicly said like, hey, we're going to hear this case. And these are the questions we'll be yes. looking at. Yes. So like yeah. people will file amicus briefs in order to basically persuade or show the justices like, this is important and this is what I think we should talk about. So it's it's important for the actual, you know, like the hearing and the actual case, but it's also important for the search stage of like yeah. what the justices may or may not choose to hear. Well, we have to keep in mind, like, I mean, I swear what each session, like, thousands of cases like mm-hmm. go or like apply for a seriatory i don't certiorari so, yeah, yeah don't quote me any of these terms but like you know they apply to be like yo supreme court like listen to me and so uh-huh. it's like who are the people reviewing all these claims like right. law clerks to a large extent like i read one factoid that was saying like law clerks a lot of times when like reading these like rights for certiorari certiorari will like separate them into like three piles yes yes I heard it was the Ginsburg clerks exactly yes they said they would separate into three piles based on like who was filing it like if they knew Mm -hmm. who who the attorney was that wrote it yeah name recognition like Mm -hmm. if you've come before the supreme court before like 
our very own state of Texas boy, Ted Cruz. Like, you know, he's, <laughs> oh, you know, he's infamous, famous for however, which way you lean, like, you know, Supreme Court arguers. They're going to read it. Yeah. So it's like, okay, there's some like name recognition or mm-hmm. just, you know, like establishment in the system. So then it also goes into, it's like what implicit biases are just like present at each part of the stage when like, um, decide whether to hear a case and like, yeah. like decide on a question. So like, Amicus briefs are so important yeah. for like all steps of like like what you were saying, appellate through yeah. Supreme and, Court. And you know, what's really interesting is that the the, the court doesn't actually have to grant permission to every single mm-hmm. brief that is filed. Now, if it's filed by and I, I I didn't really expand on this a whole lot, but if it's filed by the federal government or one of its officers or it's filed by the U.S. state, then the court does actually have to accept oh, it. Okay. Now, if it's filed by one of those advocacy groups, Cato Institute, etc., right, what they do is they actually uh, have to give consent. And, and, and this is called a, uh, hold on, I have it here, uh, a motion for leave. So essentially what this is, it's, it's a deviation from established rules or procedures of the court to accept such submissions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one thing that, that, that y'all are uh, going to talk about in even greater detail is the fact that, you know, uh, what distinguishes, you know, uh, government bodies or governmental mm-hmm. bodies from these, you know, outside individuals and groups is the fact that they actually have to outline the money that's involved in preparing oh, or submitting okay. the brief, mm. um, yep. which, you know, is a real particular note. <laughs> In this podcast, I think mm-hmm. it's just you know the the the, the lobbying um, and and a lot of the dark money that's being used right to sway court opinion um, in, in in support of you know one statute or you know uh, uh, to voice disapproval of another mm-hmm. statute. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like the amicus briefs have basically, in a sense, become like a powerful lobbying tool for certain interest groups. So mm-hmm. you know, I Tell think. Us more about it. Yeah. Well, I. <laughs> I mean, there are rules at the Supreme Court that basically say that, like, you have to disclose, like, who made a monetary contribution Mm -hmm. for the submission of a brief. But obviously, you know, there's loopholes in so many different rules, and this one is no exception. (laughs) So um, a lot of advocacy groups and a lot of different um, just um, interest groups have found ways to get around this disclosure. Um, And so... Senator Whitehouse, which we yes. talked about earlier, actually has a bill um, in Congress right mm-hmm. now called the Amicus Act, which stands for Assessing <laughs> Monetary Influence in the Courts of the United States Act. And basically, it would hopefully solve a lot of the loopholes that the Supreme Court is experiencing. Because what's happening now is they're finding ways to go around it by like making monetary contributions in other ways that aren't directly tied to an amicus brief or maybe making a donation, um, but it's not quite directly with an amicus brief. So a lot of outside groups are funding this mass um, submission of amicus briefs. And so what we're seeing now is that a lot of these major cases have what um, has been deemed like an amicus wrangler or like an amicus whisperer. And so these people, yeah, it's like kind of crazy, but these people, like they're usually a lawyer and they're connected to the party of interest and they coordinate and they vet prospective people who are going to file amici or um, just like different arguments before they file. So they'll reach out, say like, hey, you should file this brief. And then they'll, once they write it, they'll read it. And then they'll basically make sure everything's okay. So they'll like recruit like yeah. different amicus, like different like positions, basically? Uh, yeah, well, they'll recruit people who they know will support their position and then basically provide them some sort of 
monetary contribution. So I always and, wonder, like, yeah, where does the like the big money come in? Like, of just like paying these people mm-hmm. to even like write. Yeah. These so yeah. what? Well, finding too, right? Um, I mean, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I one notorious group is the Koch brothers. Oh Obviously, God. they yeah. they fund a lot of the um, amicus briefs, and we actually saw that in the current Roberts courts, uh, donors have reaped enormous returns on their investments. So I think it's like right now, like over eighty partisan Republican five four decisions that you can easily attribute to a Republican Party donor interest. So I from guess the by briefs. investments, like, do you mean like just by amicus briefs or like money even to like? lobby for people to be like appointed to the court i think it's a little bit of both i yeah, think it's, I think it's so probably tied together but i think this specifically was talking about how like um they're funding the amicus briefs i mean we say funded lightly because it's not directly funded they do it through other means but yeah like a republican party donor donor interest is wrangling all these amicus briefs to support an interest and then the courts kind of take this as like you know, a sign that which way they should rule. And yeah. I think uh, there was a court case, Americans for Prosperity Foundation v. Bonta. Um, and that this is like the most recent example mm-hmm. of like an amicus brief influx. And I think this one's really interesting because okay. the, the plaintiff, which is the Americans for Prosperity Foundation, is basically a 501c arm of the Koch network. And they're like a right-wing <laughs> political advocacy group. And yeah. so what this court that case was, was is... It objected to a California state regulation that required nonprofits to disclose their largest donors. So, like, right now, like, nonprofits have to disclose their donors to, um, in, like, IRS filings, Mm -hmm. but that's not made public. So, California had a statute that, on top of filing to IRS, you also had to disclose to the state if you were a nonprofit who your donors were. So, this group objected (laughs) to that, um, and, you know... Interesting that, yeah. you know, the Supreme Court was hearing this because it's, like, directly try- tied to amicus briefs. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. obviously, <laughs> uh, they ruled in support of keeping um, nonprofit donors um, confidential. So, I thought that was interesting. But at That's least so 55 funny. of the amicus briefs that were filed at the cert stage. So, this is before okay. the Supreme Court had wow. decided wow. Um, to hear the case were in support of the petitioner had taken money from the, the Coke network already. So thought that was really interesting and everybody complains about soros mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> i kid i kid always and and in this case i mean the center for media and democracy found that 11 prominent right-wing groups gave 220 million dollars to 69 of the the organizations that filed amicus briefs in this case wow. so this is this is big money i mean there's a lot of funding that goes into these amicus briefs and there's a lot of interest so then, like how effective are the briefs like i always wonder like do the judges read them do their clerks read them like how do we know, how can we tell like, if these briefs are actually having an impact on mm-hmm. the rulings? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think we, we were talking a little bit about how, like, Ginsburg, Ginsburg's clerks would, um, oh, would sort like, the sort them based on who they thought or they knew before and the relevance. But, you know, I think that I think the justices definitely do read them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we listen a lot on oral arguments. Like, the justices mm-hmm. reference yeah. amicus briefs in the oral arguments. Well, 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 that's the crazy thing is that, I mean, obviously there's not enough time in, in, in the term for the Supreme Court or in the term for appellate courts mm-hmm. in order for, you know, the people writing these or the organizations backing them to actually present them in court, right? I mean, I, I don't think we yeah. mentioned this explicitly, but I mean, I, I, I think we have, you know, uh, you know, in some ways implicitly noted is that these are things that the judges or justices or their clerks right read i mean this isn't mm-hmm. presented in court mm-hmm. right it's it's not like here let me give you you know my full argument it's more mm-hmm. of this is something that's done in the background right mm-hmm. so you don't know right how these 
justices really are are considering or approaching all of this until really the 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 case itself. Well, yeah. and I think people have seen that like like they will cite the amicus briefs like in their rulings or in their decisions, yeah. like concurring or just like like we look at this one. So and, I think that has risen during the Roberts court yeah. recently. Yeah. And, and to me, like I feel like when I first like was just learning about amicus briefs, like I always thought it was more of like a symbolic thing. You know, I thought oh, people were okay. just like filing to make their That's opinions known, too. but no one really listened. But yeah. like. We're finding that, like, as the time goes on, and, like, Mm -hmm. I know we cited earlier that, like, 900% increase, like, the justices are using amicus briefs to their advantage, and it's almost signaling to certain, certain justices, like, what might be the correct outcome in a specific case. And, like, right now we're seeing that a lot of these amicus briefs, and I'm not sure, like, if this is just for, like, you know, what political leaning side, but Mm -hmm. amicus briefs in general are asking justices lately to go well beyond the narrow confines of the case. So a lot of these, you know, uh, amicus briefs are asking them to consider questions that aren't even um, what the justices agreed to consider. So it just shows that, like, they are, they are, turning into this extreme idea of showing yeah. like what should be done well so even in west virginia versus epa we talked about this a little bit on our last podcast mm-hmm. but like how we were talking about like the major questions doctrine and like how i think arguably like one of the biggest ramifications of that case will be like the administrative like constraints and how like administrative agencies will now be able to like have like their different powers that are like enumerated from congress mm-hmm. that's like so but i mean because that was i think like wholly outside of like the confines of like what the clean power plan yes. it was. Yes. Um, and it, spooky. it was interesting to me. I mean, we were talking earlier about how like, you know, there's definitely cases where some of these donors um, behind these amicus briefs actually lobbied for the confirmation of specific yeah. justices. And it, it's interesting because there are, you know, there's evidence that some of these litigants that are bringing cases to the Supreme Court intentionally are losing their cases in lower courts because they know they want to go to the Supreme Court where they know they might have a more favorable ruling. So I, there was an example, um, Frederick's v. California Teachers Association. The the litigants, um, it, was a, it was basically a lawsuit that was trying to overturn decades-old labor precedents, but they directly asked the lower courts to rule against them so that they could take their Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court claims... Um, much more quickly um so i just think that you know they're being they're not even trying to hide it anymore it's it's blatant we want to go straight to the supreme court because we want a final decision from there it's not really the short-term gains anymore you know winning in a lower Mm -hmm. court it's just let's go straight to the supreme court jesus that's truly playing the system i suppose i mean well i feel like that's like we're in like a period of what is it i don't remember the term like of judicial supremacy where it's like people are turning towards the courts to like achieve like you know, to, like, enact policies that, like, they're not able to enact and, like, mm. gridlock to, like, Congress or, like, mm-hmm. Senate, to where it's, like, now people are just going to the courts to, like, yeah. you know, ban abortions, because, like, that may not be possible yep. in, like, states like Kansas, where, where it's, like, public opinion is obvious that mm-hmm. they lean one more one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So, I guess, yeah. spooky times. I mean, I mean, same thing with ICWA. I mean, we just heard yeah. that, like, there's no way they're going to strip Native Americans of rights their land or water so you know they've been trying to fight it in the courts and Mm -hmm. corporate interests have been trying to take down their rights to land and water and finally to the supreme court we'll see what happens we don't know but uh we'll we'll see it's just like this like large like confederation of just like oh you know like like network of like small businesses and then you know it's centralized to where it's like okay we're going to represent like you know the ideas of you know small businesses across the country but it's been very largely linked to the Coke empire that we were talking about earlier with the Coke (laughs) brothers. And so then you have groups like this, like really trying to push their agenda. And so I guess like 
at least in uh, this court case, we saw that there was like right-wing donors pumped over $2 million into litigation efforts. And uh, these this money was all eventually like tied back to the Freedom Partners Chamber of Commerce, which is a conservative advocacy group mm, of course. with ties to the Koch Empire. <laughs> and so, um, but it's, I think this case was also kind of interesting because like this uh, case was uh, hearing, uh, was challenging uh, the Affordable Care Act. It was like one of the first challenges, wasn't it? Yeah, because it was on like um, the independent filing or like mm. one of those uh, things. But like comparing this case to the one that you were mentioning earlier, like it was, there were so many more um, amicus briefs filed in the Americans uh, for Prosperity Foundation case mm-hmm. because that case was basically trying to decide like, do you have to disclose your donors? Mm-hmm. It was a big deal for these, yeah. these donor groups who wanted to keep their donors private. So it just, it, to me, it just seems so like, like ironic that like, it's a case about them, but like <laughs> they're funding to make it worse. I don't know. It just, it was just common. Is, is it about disclosing, right, the donors who are, you know, helping contribute, right, to these amicus briefs? Or is mm-hmm. it more about limiting the funding Right, I think it's just in the straight up disclosure. Okay. So it's just they're trying to hide it, really. It's like mm-hmm. even going back to like Citizens United and the idea of like, do you have to publicize like who is contributing to these um, campaigns? Like not capping it, but just like saying who, mm-hmm. which is spooky because it's like, as you can see, like through a lot of the data that we have, just thanks to, you know, Senator like Whitehouse, it's like you can trace a lot of times like that the Koch empire has ties to a lot of these mm-hmm. advocacy groups. But we don't know, like, who specifically. Like, we know $220 million was yeah. f- for these amicus briefs, but who? Like, obviously it was the Koch network, network but, like, who in that network in and what network. groups? And, you know, it, it, it's tough because, like, we don't know who we're fighting against a lot of times or who these other advocacy groups are fighting against. Yeah. Like, what they're working against. So. Oh, and, and, I mean, we, we've even seen, you know, outside of, of the court, just in politics, you know, the corrosive effect of, of, of right, large, uh, 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 you know, contributions, right, to uh, 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 politicians and, and PACs, right? You know, do you think we're ever going to get to a point where we're going to have to limit this kind of money? I mean, and, and do you even think know. that would be constitutionally feasible to do something like that? You um, know, I don't know. There's a big argument right now of, like, can can Congress give rules for the judicial branch it's like can you regulate what the court can and cannot do and that that has to do with amicus briefs but i think they were also talking about doing something similar for like justice recusal so it's like how far can you legislate the judicial branch and it's i think that the goal is to hope like the judicial branch would just implement their own standards or like code of procedures or <laughs> but ethics. That's why, but like, we were just not. talking about like, no. cause I asked a question before the podcast of like, has a justice ever been kicked out? Mm-hmm. Like, Once. is there like, cause you know, friggin' Samuel Alito, great skincare r- r- routine. But of course like <laughs> Alito has been like, you know, we don't, there was something that just came out from like, what, like an anti-choice this morning. Like, leader. Yes. About like Alito maybe having dinner with people and being like, and telling them the ruling, the, the outcome of the case before the opinion had been released. Yeah. On, like contraceptive uh, Hobby Lobby case yeah so it's like is there like could Congress like implement or like pass legislation like maybe mandatory recusals like, yeah like if a justice is in bad standing like how do you police people who have a lifetime senate appointment. like appointment mm-hmm. and yeah the I mean the one time that a justice was impeached they were acquitted in the senate so it's no one's yeah. ever actually been removed from the supreme court and I don't think we're really gonna cross this path yeah with, I'm just daydreaming this, but yeah. I, yeah seriously 
But I mean, I do think there is a conversation to be had about limiting the or capping the amount that can be invested in the amicus brief. 100%. This should not be a dark money, big money business. I um, and I mean, the, the thing that that of course is so strange about the amicus briefs is that right, it, it it's an outgrowth, I guess, of of uh, I don't know making court rulings more efficient. Mm-hmm. Right, oh, you know, it, it, it isn't something that was inherent in in issuing rulings or in deciding cases. I mean, mm-hmm. this was something that was initially meant to help right mm-hmm. these justices. Yeah. You know, right. and and now, I mean, so, so the thing, right, is is okay if we did want to cap spending, right? Is is I mean, is that or something we can do because it's not? Uh, oh, sorry, I, I didn't catch that. Oh, sorry. Well, I, like I think like. Like, it's, like, cap spending. I don't think maybe feasible, but, like, and, like, because was it Senator Whitehouse's, like, amicus act? Like, he just wants to uh, require disclosures from people who file, like, yeah, more than polls. three, yeah, more than three amicus briefs in a year. Well, and, and the thing I also uh, think that would be really difficult about, and I can't remember if this was in Citizens United or if this was in Buckley v. Vallejo, but I know mm-hmm. that after 1974, because after the whole Watergate scandal, they essentially tried to... Uh, uh, you know, not just, obviously they wanted to disclose, right, where you got your money from, right, where you spending it on, right, but it's also capping campaign spending too, right? And that was, I think in Buckley v. Vallejo, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that was outlawed because uh, capping spending was perceived as, you know, limiting the expression of, of yeah. you know, free speech, right? Mm-hmm. So would it be, uh, 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 I don't know, would it apply similarly like with, so. with amicus briefs, right? Whereas, you know, any kind of limit uh, or restriction on, on you know, uh, uh, spending, right, for the creation of these briefs, right, could that be seen as an infringement of, of the argument? That's what I'm like, I don't, why, why do you need $222 million to write, to open up a Google Doc and write with some words? Well, you know? I mean, but that's my thing. I was like, or like, fund some research. Is it infringing know. First Amendment rights to free speech if we just ask you to say who you are, if you're going to say it, say it proudly? No, that's what, that's yeah, where I, I think and, this is really important. And I, totally. I, don't, I don't disagree with that. I mean, the, the disclosure requirements have have it's a tried and true thing even within mm-hmm. uh, oh, uh, uh, you know political campaigns oh, now right. obviously as we start getting to dark money and stuff like that then uh, of course there's less yeah. supervision and control right exactly. but but it is something that's already being used and I think it's if if these briefs are starting to take on more of an important role and there's mm-hmm. greater funding that's involved in them then absolutely a thousand percent disclosure is, mm-hmm. is, is needed yeah yeah um, and I think just like like so that the public knows, like, how judicial reasoning is being influenced by, like, yeah. these masked private actors. Well, you know? and the thing is, like, you know, if they're going to be citing these amicus briefs in their opinions, and we don't even know who's funding the opinions exactly. they're citing. Like, it's not like they're just filing $220 million worth of amicus briefs and, you know, the justice aren't really reading them. Yeah. They're reading them and they're citing them. It's influencing them. their language. Like, yeah. it's spooky. And they're using, um. I think I read somewhere that, like, a lot of, some of the language that is used in amicus briefs is scarily similar to the language that's actually used in the opinion. I think yeah. Dobbs was an example. Oh, yeah. No. Oh, wow. The, yeah, yeah they, there was, like, language in amicus briefs that they just, you know. Yeah, and, and, and it's scary because sometimes justices actually will, I mean, they won't decide the case, but they'll certainly take reasoning from mm-hmm. yeah. uh, uh, an amicus brief and, and, and they'll use that to decide the case mm-hmm. on the merits. I mean, so it's, it's... It's not bad. I mean, you're using no, other people's it, reasoning, but we don't know whose reasoning it is. Right. Yeah, versus like oral arguments where it's open to the public. Yes. Like, it's... You can just m- m- trace more where things are coming from. No, I mean, I, 
absolutely. I mean, in, in uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think what we're all starting to see is that this is just, it's all very complex, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and in terms of, I guess, enacting positive change, you know, it's, yeah. it's, where do you start? And I think mm-hmm. disclosure, disclosure. Uh, requirements is, is, is at least a necessary starting point. Yeah. Um, and I just, I think it's interesting that, you know, I, I, Justice Alito has been coming out a lot um, in the, in the media and saying like, <laughs> you know, like we should trust the institution and we should yeah, trust the judicial branch. Yeah. He's like, no. we're not political, but you know, this is just one other instance where like things need to change. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure, I, I don't want to say it would happen, but I'm sure there would be similar situation if there was a liberal majority on the court. I'm sure something similar would yeah. be happening. So this maybe is not just the federal society or the conservative legal movement, but at the end of the day, it still needs to be fixed and it, something needs to be done about either capping or disclosure requirements and, Right. No, just greater yeah. transparency, which I think is, I mean, that, that is supposed to be the hallmark of government, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, which is, we don't want to obfuscate things. We, we basically want it so that we know who's saying what, where's it coming from, mm-hmm. right? Transparency. Exactly. Well, like what I was saying earlier, just like being in this period of like judicial supremacy, where like people are going to the courts to like pass policies yeah. that they couldn't otherwise, like if money is being like, you know, fun, like just like, you know, funneled into these courts to then push certain agendas to then like get policies through. It's like, I think that concretizes like the idea of like money equals power equals like policies. So it's just like, if people keep on using this yeah. money to like get this stuff through, like at least tell us who you are. Like you're, you know, I just yeah. think oh. super freaky, especially with this, it's just the court that we have right now. And just given the, the fact that like the amount of amicus briefs that have been cited in opinions and the amount that have been filed all together, has just been increasing year to year. I'm really curious to see like where, we're going to go from here. Like if we're going to see more and more and more amicus briefs being filed, um, and like at what point it just becomes too much. Yeah. Um, I think that's really interesting. I mean, what I'm also curious is, and, 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 and this, I don't know if, if, if you guys managed to read anything about it, but I'm curious as to, to some of the, uh, criteria that the justices have and, and, and judges to mm-hmm. the, the appellate courts for accepting mm-hmm. these, uh, uh, amicus briefs, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in terms of, you know, the oh, validity of it or, yeah. or the like truthfulness, right? I mean, h- how do they weigh those things? Yeah. How, do, how do they verify them? Can we I mean, submit an amicus brief? Yeah, like, you, know? And, you know, I looked it up. I was like, who can file an uh, amicus the brief? The Onion can. Yeah, yeah, The Onion can. It's just, Oh, think, actually? No, it, UT Austin does. The Supreme Court clinic. Yeah. The, the Onion it, has? Yeah, uh-huh. it's hilarious. Oh, it's so funny. Where? For what case? I don't remember. It was a case about parody. It was like they were trying to rule against I mean, like amicus brief. parody, but it, it it was funny. You should go oh, read this it. is it was October third, twenty twenty two. Anthony Novak versus City of Parma, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, on petition for right of series. Oh, so it's a cert, a cert yeah. amicus brief. <laughs> oh my gosh, we were talking about earlier. Yeah, but anyone can file an Sport amicus brief. Yeah, um, like we could file an amicus brief, but I think the only stipulation is that apparently a council of record must be a member of the Supreme Court bar. I don't know quite exactly oh, what that yeah. means, but I think you just have to have someone We can take sign a test, on. yeah. Yeah, we, we can find someone. Eventually. I don't know. Well, also, I mean, how do you manage to read through, uh, I mean, all of these in, in such a, I mean, that's, court, that's that's what amazes me. I mean, I th- what was the, the earlier stat that we discussed, it was like 781 briefs were filed in, in the 2014 it's like 900 and now. Each, and each of these are what, yeah. about 30 pages of briefs? I mean, or more. Not not just how do you read through all of them? How do you understand uh-huh. right the full extent of the arguments? How can you then go and check to see 
you know, oh, whether right. the sources being used are right. I mean, what's, what's to stop me? I'm organization X, right? And I come up with the Samicus brief and I start, you know, uh, uh, manufacturing all kinds of, of statistics, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think this, well, I, I think yeah. that. I mean, it falls on the clerics, I think. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think we saw a lot that, I mean, like, this core has become, or at least for certain rulings, very reliant on like historical, what was going on at the time of the case was passed. And like yeah. a lot of the history that they are invoking isn't it's always the most, the most correct. So it's like, are they actually doing the work to find alter or other opinions on the history that they're signing? Okay. I'm really curious to just see where this amicus act goes and hopefully Senator uh, Whitehouse will keep pushing on that i mean obviously we just learned and we're not going to take a stance on it but just learned that congress is going to be divided so you never know how True. much stuff is actually going to get done there but yeah. maybe the supreme court will take up a legislative <laughs> idea guess, they, they haven't the quite been afraid of it in the past uh -huh. and I, mean, I, I i wonder and this is I, I i know we're we're closing up shortly here um mm -hmm. but i mean i i just wonder i mean returning to an earlier thought i mean it, yeah. should we should Congress regulate these briefs? Uh, you know, sorry. Should should these? I, yeah, sorry. These briefs themselves. I mean, should they be regulated at the court level, or is this something that Congress should regulate at? You know, the 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 research group or the research institution oh. level, right? I mean, because. What, what, I mean, if you really care about the veracity, right, of what these groups are putting out there, why not start? At, at you know the 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 research level right I mean mm. I mean ensuring that these people are putting out the right kinds of information because mm. the whole freedom yeah. of speech thing right it's you want everyone to be able to express themselves right but but when you know but when it's at the cost of misinformation mm -hmm. right or incorrectly swaying opinion to the detriment of you know groups of people entire groups of yeah. people it's like at what point do we need government intervention yeah. and, and what kind? Um, what kind, yeah. Yeah, and how far should it go? disclosure enough, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, um, listen, Murray, if you made it this far. <laughs> we love you. We love you. I saw you at UT Law last week. It was phenomenal. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, go read Sheldon Whitehouse's mm -hmm. Yale Law Review article. Yeah. Uh, go check out Strict Scrutiny's uh, podcast, Fossil Fuel Rules Everything Around Me. And um, go read the Onion's amicus brief. Yeah, and <laughs> don't be stuff. afraid to hold institutions of power accountable, especially yes. like amicus briefs. Mm -hmm. Take yeah. down judicial supremacy. <laughs> uh, see you next time. Alrighty, see, see you. Guys. Thanks Bye. for listening. La La Land, the podcast of the Texas Undergraduate Law Journal, is hosted by Alexander Sutsiotis, Braxton Camden, and me, Juliet Draper. We'd like to give a special thank you to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse for joining us today in spirit. Now, go subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. Check out our favorite podcast, Scrutiny.